you are visiting with us, glad that you're here and just want to fill you in. And if you're a member, this is just a reminder, but every September of every year, we call that our ministry year. So we work on an academic calendar year where leadership spends a lot of time praying and planning to say this upcoming year, we feel God is leading us in a spiritual focus and direction. And so our theme for this year and our spiritual focus is going to be called to Christ and also called to serve because God has blessed us immensely in his son and has gifted each and every one of you, uniquely you, gifted in the grace of Jesus Christ to be able to serve God and our neighbor with great joy and confidence and faith in him. And so our prayer is as we begin this year that every one of you in some big or small way would be able to participate in the mission that we feel God is leading us here at New Life Press called to Christ and called to serve. And that's why, as Pastor Paul has led us, we are kicking off this ministry year with a sermon called Encounters with Jesus, where we'll take a look at various people with various baggage, various sin issues, various life stages and cultural settings, how everyone in some form or fashion find their heart and their solution and their hope in this guy named Jesus. And so our prayer is that by the Word of God and by the Spirit, you'll get to know who Jesus is through the next couple of months as we look at various counters of Jesus. And today, we kick off this series by looking at who Jesus is in his baptism. So if you're able, I want to ask you to please stand for the reading of his word. I'm going to read from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3. This is a well-known passage about the baptism of Jesus, verses 13 to 17. Please open up your hearts, open up your lives, and to receive the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And this is God's word. You could take your seats at this time. Call to Christ, call to serve. And so we're going to look at, as we're called to Christ, who exactly is this Jesus that we worship? We'll take a look at who Christ is and what he's done for us. And perhaps no other passage does that with better clarity than the passage that we've just read. And so I want to just talk with you a little bit about who Jesus is, the significance of him, the uniqueness of him, the applicability of what he's done for you. Because when you look at Christianity, and maybe you've read the Bible and you've looked at different people in the Bible, perhaps the apostles, you'll notice that all kinds of people really come to Christ. And you're wondering maybe if you're visiting with us, I want to be enraptured by his love. I want to be taken aback by his grace. But it seems oftentimes mundane, ineffective, lethargic, languishing. But I pray the sermon series will be able to, by the Spirit, change you in that level. Because every one of you have a, has a different background. You have a different question, a different life circumstance, a different struggle. And maybe it's far-fetched, but I'm going to try to present at least the Christian case to say, in some form or fashion, Christianity offers your life situation something entirely unique. Now, for example, 
when you look at two of the biggest apostles, and these are the guys who started the church in the New Testament in Acts, the Apostle Paul and Peter, they're very different. When they encountered Jesus, we believe that they walked away very differently, as you will too. But Paul and Peter are very different. Paul, when he came, he was the greatest Pharisee. He murdered Christians. He was attacking the movement of Christianity. And he went from being the, the biggest uh, enemy of Christianity to being the biggest apostle through this experience of encountering Jesus on a road called Damascus. And it was life-transforming. It was instantaneous. It was miraculous. It was breathtaking. And some of you want that experience, and I do too, but I think actually most of our encounters with Jesus is sort of limping along, sort of like Peter. Peter was a hothead, he was strong, he was a leader, and Jesus says, you're going to be the rock I build my church on, and Peter in his heart says, I'm never going to deny you, I'm going to stick with you forever, and in the next moment, what does Peter do? He denies Jesus three times, and what does Christ do? He reinstates Jesus, talks about his sin, forgives him and wants him to understand how he can repent. But Peter's experience is probably more common. The church is full of hypocrites. You think you're vigilant, you're on fire for God, and the next moment you're hypocritical. You sin, you say you love God, but you hate your neighbor. But each one of these guys comes with their own baggage to Jesus. Because whenever you come to Jesus, it is impossible if you truly believe in him, truly accept him, truly understand them, it's impossible to come to Jesus and walk away the same person. You may not be like Paul, in which it's instantaneous, but it may be more like Peter, which two steps forward, three steps back, you sort of limp along, you go really fast for a sprint, and then you do a marathon as you walk back. It's just a messy process. Either way, you encounter Jesus, and you're going to walk away different. Everything about you will change. Your priorities your vision for life, your self, your sense of self-worth, the goals of your life, how you treat people, how you parent, how you use your money, how you care for the world. Everything about you will change if you truly and deeply encounter Jesus. And so for today, I pray that as we look at this baptism, we're going to run through very quickly four things about Jesus that shows how he's utterly unique from anyone else that you've ever met in this world. Every other religion, every other human being, every other system of life, Jesus is entirely unique, and I think if he's unique, he offers something unique to you. So let's look at this. Four things about who Jesus is. One, he came for people like you and me. Why did he come into the world? He came for sinners like you and me. Secondly, we see that the heavens opened up to say something about Jesus. Thirdly, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, comes down on Christ like a dove. And then lastly, the voice of God speaks. So we're just running through the passage. Four things about Jesus. He came for people. The heavens opened up. The dove came down and fluttered on top of Christ. And then a voice from the Heavenly Father spoke about his son. Four things. So let's look at this quickly. The first unique thing about Jesus is that he came for people. Now, I know other religions say they come for people, but he comes in an entirely different way, a different mechanism, a different purpose. You can see actually in verse 1, that Jesus, he has a mission, you know, in that verse 1, verse 13, because in verse 13, it says, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John. You know, he's a man on mission, really quickly, Galilee to, to the Jordan to John, really quickly. So he had a mission, he had a purpose, he didn't waste any time, and the reason is because he came for people. Read with me verses 13 to 15. Let me try to break this down for you a little bit. 
13 says, And Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you're coming to me. But Jesus answered him, Well, for now, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. Now, it's sort of tough language, but basically, John the Baptist was the greatest preacher of that time. He's preaching about repentance. He's baptizing people. The church is beginning to grow. It's exploding. Jesus comes onto the scene. John sees Jesus. John has been saying, there's someone much greater than me. You think I'm the greatest preacher now? Someone is definitely and far greater than me, and his name is Jesus. Jesus comes up onto the scene, and what does Jesus do? He says, John, baptize me. And John's confused. He's saying, wait, Jesus, you're greater than me. Your baptism is greater than me. You're actually the Savior. I'm just a sinner. And the only people who get baptized are those who are sinners and need forgiveness to be cleansed from their sin. Jesus wasn't a sinner. He was sinless. He was the Son of God. So John is really confused. But Jesus says this in the verses I just read. Just for now, John, just for now, it's fitting for us, you and I, to fulfill all righteousness. You and I, let's fulfill all righteousness. Now, righteousness, that word means the required way of living under God. It's an ethical term. Let's live in a way that God wants us to live. And God says, Jesus and John, you guys need to connect. You guys got to pass the baton, but Jesus is going to get baptized under John. Now, why would Jesus get baptized under John? Well, I want you to notice a couple of things. Two parts to that phrase. Notice what he says to John. It's appropriate for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, if you grow up in the church, you realize most of the time we say, Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus came to fulfill the law. This is very unique, but Jesus comes and says, hey, you and I, we're partners in this together just for now. And you and I are going to fulfill all righteousness together. He recognizes, in other words, friends, that there's something that both he and John must do in order to live rightly under God. John has to baptize, Jesus has to receive. And then he gives the explanation. He's saying, basically, I'm not being baptized because I'm sinful and need repentance. I'm being baptized in order to identify with people who need forgiveness and repentance. See, when Jesus takes on flesh, he's saying, I'm entering into your world. I'm contextualizing to your life circumstance. He's saying, I'm going to be baptized because I'm identifying with broken people and sinners, which means that when Jesus gets baptized, he's saying, I'm coming for you, and you, and you, and you. You think your experience is unique? Well, yeah, it is. Your experience is unique. But Jesus, as he gets baptized, says, I'm going to enter into your experience in your world. I'm going to identify with sinners. I'm going to identify with people who are broken, who are hurting, who are lost, who have idols, who have aspirations and feel like they failed in life. Everything that you go through, Jesus says, you and I, John, we're in this together. Give a fist bump, baptize me because I'm entering into your experience. I'm going to enter into this world who needs a savior for broken people, and I'm going to identify as a sinless man with the sin of the people, a generation that needs forgiveness. See, friends, in submitting to John's baptism, Jesus is showing that he's willing to go to the lengths of taking the judgment that you and I deserve on the cross and to give you glory and blessing in replace of that. He's identifying and relating to people that he has come to save. It's very humble. Jesus shows his humility. I wouldn't be like Jesus. I'd be like, okay, John, step aside. The main show has come. 
I'm here to take over. Pass me the baton, I'm going to run forward. But Jesus shows humility and he steps in and says, I'm going to identify. Now, let me try to illustrate this in several ways. Maybe, maybe you don't have to be a parent, but you know, maybe you're a school teacher, teach at New Life Kids. Sometimes when little kids bring their picture, a five-year-old, and you see a picture of their family, stick figures, it's lopsided, it's crooked, maybe there's a son, and it's not really that good if you're trying to grade it as art. Isn't that the case? But it's beautiful because a little kid is drawing this and showing it to you. So what do parents do? That's wonderful. Why don't you, how did you do that? What color did you use for this? How did you draw this? Who is this supposed to be? That's your mommy? Or does she have long hair? You come down to their level to identify with them, to encourage them to say, I'm with you in this. That's what Jesus is doing. He's in his humility saying, no sin for me, don't need forgiveness, don't need baptism, but I'm going to come down to the level of humanity. That's why a missionary, Father Damien, who's a Catholic missionary in the 1800s, he once said, I make myself a leper, because he was a missionary to lepers in Hawaii, I make myself a leper with the lepers to gain all lepers to Jesus. He comes down on their level. He comes down and he breaks himself to relate and to connect with people who are needy. So that's the first thing. He came in a way that's entirely different because every other savior, every other savior of every religion says, you got to be like me, so follow these rules and try to use your own resources and methodology and own, lift yourself up by your own bootstraps and maybe through your morality and your intelligence and your accomplishments and you could finally attain to being as good as me. That's what every other savior basically says. Follow these rules and then... You're going to be like me. But Jesus says, well, yeah, I want holiness, but the first thing is that I'm going to come down into your world. Entirely different. Christianity is the only savior that does that for you. You'll come down into your world in a broken up world, in the brokenness of your life, to say, I'm connecting because John the Baptist baptized me. But secondly, after John baptized him, really quickly, there's three things that happens. The heavens opened. The Spirit comes down, and God's voice speaks. It's talking about who Jesus is. So heaven's opened. Jesus is baptized. Immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. Now, personally, I would have loved to have seen what this looked like. What does it mean the heavens have opened? Now, I can't imagine what it looked like, but it must have been miraculous. Now, one of the theological points for you to understand is this. In the Old Testament, they're always prophesying of the king that's going to come back of the servant who's going to suffer for you, a king and a servant. All the prophets were talking about that. They're just saying, you just wait. All the major minor prophets, you wait. The king is coming. The savior is coming. He's going to restore Israel. He's going to bring Israel back to the state of economic and political might. So all these preconceived notions about this. And it ends on the last book of the Old Testament called Malachi, saying, wait until that day comes. And did you know what happens between the Old Testament and the New after they're saying, wait, 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 the guy's going to come, the main show, the main attraction, the savior of the world, wait, wait, wait. And then the last prophet, Malachi, basically says the same thing And what happens between the Old and the New Testament, which begins in Matthew. They waited about 400 years. There was silence. And then all of a sudden, John the Baptist comes, he starts preaching, Jesus comes onto the scene, and they're waiting for 400 years for God to say something, but there's no more prophets, there's no Elijah, they're just waiting, and all of a sudden, the heavens opened. Now, do you know how long they're waiting for heavens to open? You ever go watch a show, a movie, 
the curtains open, you're waiting, you're trying to watch something, Hamilton, Wicked, whatever it is, you're waiting for the curtains to open, but then he knows the show is about to begin. They waited 400 years. This is a climactic moment in the history of the world. The heavens opened, and God was about to do something miraculous after 400 years. Now, what did he do? Heavens opened, God's ready to speak. Something historical is happening. In verse 16, it literally says, the heavens opened. Did you know that word open actually carries a sense of accessible? It means that he's given you access. You know, many of you want access. Isn't that true? You want access to people in power. You want access to those who are on top of the corporate ladder. You want access to the people who are charismatic. You want access to people who are influencers. Everybody wants access. In Matthew's gospel, when he says the heavens open, that word there means, I'm giving you access. You waited 400 years. It means that not, is only, not only is something coming out of heaven, but he's saying, I'm going to let you in to all the glory and all the blessings and to the kingdom realities, and the world opens up. It gives something that many of us want means access, accessibility. Mark's version is strong in the gospel account of his baptism of Jesus in the gospel of Mark. It's a different take. But Mark uses a word that doesn't mean access, but he uses a word that's talking about uh, a violent terror. It's basically where you get the word schizophrenia. So when Mark talks about the heavens open, that word in Mark is not just access, something gentle, come into my kingdom. Mark's version is basically saying it ripped open. It's a violent terror. And it's the same word in Mark that later on, when Jesus died on the cross, then it said the temple, which is access to God, the curtain that separated out the Holy of Holies, that curtain ripped and opened. It's the same word. And so Mark's take is a little bit violent. It's a little bit stronger. It's saying something ripped open, the same word in which Jesus died on the cross. The temple ripped open. But what does the temple mean when it ripped open? Access. You can pray to God. You have a new mission, healing, an encounter with God in a way that no one in the Old Testament ever had. You know why? Because the heavens opened up, not just to send Jesus to come out, but also to let every one of you in if you follow and believe in Jesus. That's the second thing. He lets you in. You're in the VIP room. You're in the inner room of the Holy of Holies. Jesus comes down to give you that access. The heavens opened up. It's just saying, hey, not just I open up and wait for somebody to come out. Heavens opened up to say, you all, if you confess your sins and be baptized, can come in. Just imagine what that would be like. Thirdly, we see that after access is granted, the Spirit comes down and it descends. Look at verse 16. Sort of partial of the verse. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, and coming to rest on him. Now, that dove is something that's gentle. It's not a hawk. It's not an eagle. Now, it's interesting they use a dove. Now, doves are actually sort of prized animals and birds back in the Old Testament. I don't know if doves or pigeons are really the same thing, but it doesn't carry the same sense today. But the spirit came down like a dove. It fluttered. It, it floated. Now, what's the significance of this? The Holy Spirit comes down like a dove, and that word for dove, that word for spirit, is the same word that was there, the same spirit in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, in which God created the world. Because in Genesis 1, verse 2, it said the spirit 
was hovering over the face of the waters. Hovering. So sort of the same imagery. God created the universe because his spirit was hovering over the waters. And then when Jesus, baptized with water again, so the same theme, comes up, the spirit comes down and hovers, flutters, floats over Jesus Christ. Do you know why? This is what Jesus is trying to say. This is a simple point of the spirit descending. God is saying, my son, Jesus Christ, has a mission. I'm going to give him the power. I'm going to anoint him. My Holy Spirit, the very spirit that had the power to create the universe, that same spirit now flutters down onto Jesus because he's telling us this. God made creation in Genesis through the fluttering spirit. Now in his son, Jesus Christ, he's going to have recreation of you and me. God created the universe in Genesis 1 through the fluttering spirit. Now, Jesus Christ will be the agent of redemption. Jesus, by the fluttering spirit that comes down on rests on Jesus, will be recreating you and me. It's a second creation, a greater creation, a more magnificent one, because he's not just creating the world, he's transforming a community and people. And he's anointing Jesus for that very work. So the heavens open up, the spirit comes down, and last but not least, the voice speaks. Look at verse 17. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, I'm going to make this argument. God speaks. I don't know if it was deep. I don't know if it was high-pitched. I don't, I don't know what this sounds like. But God says, This is my beloved Son, and I am well pleased with him. I will say in verse 17, friends, verse 17 has what I think would be the ultimate goal for everyone in this world. What is that goal? Approval. Whether you realize it or not, every one of you wants approval. You want acceptance. It may not be for everyone, but in some level, you want validation. The words that God gives to Jesus is essentially the goal of humanity. You want approval. You want acceptance. You want somebody to believe in you. And this is actually something that's even far greater than just simple approval. Because God isn't saying about his son Jesus, okay, you have the right credentials, you're the right man for the job, you're going to perform the job, and you'll be my best employee. No, that's not what God is saying. It's not just approval, but that word, I am well pleased, is far greater, something you and I both want. Because it feels good to be approved and get hired for the job. Congratulations, this is your start date. But God is saying with his son Jesus, I just don't approve of you, I don't just anoint you, I delight in you. That word please means that God, he has so much joy in his son Jesus. So it's not just formal in terms of his responsibilities, but it's also a delight. He literally smiles when he looks down on Jesus Christ. That's the beauty of it. And on some level, that's what you and I in this thing called life are all looking for. You know, you go to school to get grades, to get approved, and maybe your parents will approve you, you'll approve yourself, go to a good college, get a good job, you want to make more money, all things which are really good. Maybe you want to be the champion of your dance team or your soccer team. All things are really good, but in some ways, you want to be validated, declared as the best. You want that because you know why? Every human being is naturally built like that to want approval. We're not made to be autonomous and self-sufficient in order for us to really resonate and to work in life. We need an identity, a validation, an approval that comes outside of us. Let me try to make my case. 
I could stand here and say that I'm a doctor or a musician or a teacher. I could say I'm a good husband and father. I could say all I want, but it's really not true unless something outside of me approves and validates that. I need to get a degree from medical school. I need to get accreditation from public school teaching. I need wife and kids to say I'm a good father and husband, a good friend. Somebody outside of me has to validate that. That's because we're dependent creatures. We can't validate ourselves. When you try to validate yourself, that's when your life gets weird. It gets fractured. It doesn't work. You feel depressed. You feel like a failure. You need validation outside of yourself. Do you know why? Because you're dependent, but we're created to get approval outside of ourselves. Words have power. Words will determine your identity. Words will give you joy and happiness. It'll make your life work. And that's why when God says to Jesus, you are my beloved son, and you make me happy, that's ultimately what all of us want. I would imagine that it must have brought some reassurance to Jesus because he was still human. And it declares to Jesus that he was the chosen one, the right one for the mission. But here's the beautiful thing of all things. This is what's so unique about Christianity. If you're tracking with me, you want approval, you want somebody to delight with you. This is what's something so utterly unique about Christianity compared to other, any other religion or approach to life. This is what it is. If you and I want approval, what do we do? We've got to work hard. You know, I'm simplifying it. You've got to be number one. Make first string on your sports team. Be state championship. Be state champion. You want to get straight A's, get into the best schools. You want to get promoted so you get good annual reviews. The world teaches you this. You've got to perform first, and then you'll be accepted, and your boss or your parent or your best friend or coach will say, I'm pleased with that. Good job. Jesus, he had the hardest job of every, any human being in the world. The hardest job. He had to love people perfectly. He had to suffer perfectly. He had to die on the cross and experience your hell and mine. He had the hardest job that anyone could ever do. And before he did any of his hardest job, what did he have? The approval of his father. See, from the beginning, God already said, I'm pleased with you. Before you perform, because every other religion says, if you want blessings, if you want access to heaven, if you want the pleasing words and delight of anyone, of God, you need to perform, then you'll get those words of pleasure. But Christianity is the only one that says, I'm going to start with the words of pleasure. You already have my approval. You have an identity. You're already cleansed. Live out of that. See, work hard, and then you'll please someone. Christianity says, I'm already approved of you. I am already pleased with you, so now you can live according to who your identity is as my children. So you're thinking, well, that's good for Jesus, but that's not true of me. But no, it is, because if you're a believer here today, and if you're not, maybe we could dialogue about that a little bit. But Christianity is the only one that says, yes, I'm broken. I'm a hypocrite. I'm a sinner. I'm, I'm, I'm struggle in life. I've hurt people. But if you give your life to Jesus then God says, I'm going to look at your life through the lens and through the life of Jesus so that I always look at you through what my son Jesus has done. So the very words in which God says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, for Christians like you and me, if you're really a believer, know that that first phrase is for you too. As hard as it is to believe. In Jesus Christ, God will always say, and it doesn't fluctuate, you are my son, you are my daughter, in whom I am well pleased. Before he even performed, before he even did anything, 
Well, after that, you know, it does change. Your heart changes, and you should serve, and you should love. But note that here, Christianity says God is pleased with you first, then you respond and live for him. Whereas everyone else says live for your deity, live for the world, and then maybe, just maybe, you'll get pleasure. See, this testimony identifies Jesus as a, a servant and a son, and it really is an echo back to the Old Testament. Isaiah 42 says that Jesus, or rather there's somebody that who will be a servant, and then in Psalm 2-7, there's someone who's going to be a son. It's interesting, in these two verses in the Old Testament, Isaiah 42 and Psalm 2, it brings together two almost contradictory notions. There's a king of power and there's a suffering servant. And then they're like, is this two people? Is it, who, what does this mean? And finally, you see how God reconciles this, and he says, the great king of power, but the humble servant come together in one person in Jesus. And that's what God declares of his son in these verses. Verse 17, the king and the servant. That's unique about Jesus. He's a lion-hearted lamb, and he was a lamb-like lion. He was a lamb that was slaughtered in humility, for your sins and mine, but he's also the reigning king who will exercise justice and reign over your life in equity and glory, but he's a lion-hearted lamb, and he's a lamb-like lion. No other person is exactly like this. He's a king, and he's a suffering servant all in one. And the irony of this mission is that the very father who declares Jesus to be his son with whom he's well pleased. Later on, you fast forward in the gospel, what does God do to the very son in whom he was well pleased? He poured his wrath on Jesus for your sin and mine and the evil of this world. He was pleased with his son and yet he sent his son to the cross and he poured out his wrath. He judged his son. He punished his son, sent him to hell to experience the separation and the hurt and the pain that you and I deserve, but we're saved from because Jesus took it for us. That's the beauty of Christianity. That's the beauty of the Father's love for us. That's the beauty of Jesus' mission as he was anointed by the Spirit to recreate this world in you and me, that the Son who is perfect, the Son who is sinless, the Son who God declared in the beginning, I love you, you bring a smile to my face. Later in the Gospels, on the sixth hour when it became dark, God poured out his wrath, punished his son for your sin and mine. Now, what sort of God would ask for anyone to kill your very own son? Well, he asked Abraham in Genesis 22, sacrifice your son Isaac. He said, Abraham, you don't have to do that. Let me show you how it's done. And he sent his son Jesus to the cross poured out his wrath, his judgment for your sin and mine. You are called to Christ, friends, in this glorious picture of who Jesus is for you. You are called to him. Follow him. Look at him. Stare at him. Receive him. And there will be automatic in which you'll be called to serve. Let's turn to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the grace that we receive in your Son. 
Thank you, Lord, that Jesus is the King who will reign in righteousness and justice, but also the Lamb in humility who suffered for us. We thank you that in Him we may hear the words that all of us desire, that we are accepted and that you delight in us and you are pleased with us. We have an identity that cannot be shaken or taken away, and we thank you so much for that truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, friends,